Uh, I want to wrap up on baptism, then we'll uh, move on to um, the Lord's Supper and um, just kind of keep us directed to going through uh, the the exercises, uh, these discernment exercises, looking at the relevant passages. Uh, With baptism, we actually didn't really look at the passages. Um, And that's because, whoopsie. Let's see, we'll just do this with baptism here. Going all, oh, here's the baptism thing. I know you want to watch it again, but I'm going to skip through. Yeah. All right. Uh, the idea being that this is a, a way to do um, com- community discernment. Um, uh, you could say that something like this happened actually at the Council of Nicaea. It was a lot messier and uh, it took a long time uh, to, to come to a consensus on uh, the doctrine that we know as the Nicene Creed. In fact, the Nicene Creed, in the form that we have, it took a nice long time. It took about three councils. Uh, but you can say that, that uh, something like this happened, except, of course, for the third question there, or what, do, uh, what do the Lutheran confessions have to say since those weren't there? But the idea being that what is, what is the material that, that we as a, as a community understand is authoritative? Uh, what does it say? Um, which passages frame the, the Discussion and which passages from the scripture will inform the frame. And then uh, this was brought up in between. Uh, but what other material can we use to inform the frame? For instance, in the question of baptism, um, if you are discerning uh, what does the Bible say about baptism, you might pick those uh, central passages, Matthew 28, Acts chapter 2, uh, and some other ones. I like Romans 6 uh, in there also. And then you would include, include all the other passages that would refer to baptism, even the ones that might not be such clear references to baptism. Um, for instance, the passage from Matthew, where Jesus says, let the children come to me. Uh, but then you might also say, what other material is uh, germane here? So, for instance, in the question of baptism, you would want to know, perhaps, what did the earliest Christians do uh, in regard to baptizing the children of believers? Do we have any other information about what the earliest believers did um, in regard to the question of baptizing the children of believers. And so you would go look at the non-scriptural uh, material from that period, uh, documents like the Didache, which is written about 100 A.D., uh, or um, uh, um, Irenaeus Against the Heresies, which was written around 165 A.D., where Irenaeus basically just says the practice of, these, uh, of, of our churches is to baptize infants. So you might want to know that information, too. That might be helpful if you're discerning what the Bible says about baptism, um, what Christians who are sort of closer to the source were doing. Um, uh, in terms of the didache, it doesn't really make anything clear about infant baptism. But the didache does say, as I was reminded of, um, this document that was written by a Christian community around 100 A.D. was considered to be part of the New Testament, but in the end didn't make the cut. Um, the document says uh, we recommend that uh, people be baptized uh, in uh, fully in water, uh, fully immersed. But if there's no, if there's not a sufficient amount of water available, then uh, using a little bit of water is okay, and even sprinkling uh, uh, is okay. So you have uh, an early witness that's not in the Bible in the New Testament, but that witnesses to the practice of the early community, right? So those considerations might also inform the basic framework of the Bible passages. Yes, ma'am. If I'm not mistaken, that text also even includes salt, that if there isn't sufficient water, you can baptize oh. with salt. 
I don't, is that right? I think so. I, uh, my students. There is a very early Christian practice of including salt with baptism. Oh, but not instead of water. With I'll water? I'll have to check yeah. the document. My but students, I, I know it's, it goes from expansive to narrow. Right. You know, to start with flowing water. But if you don't right. have flowing water. Right, then flowing you can water use, is what I wanted, right? Yeah, flowing, flowing water. Flowing water. Yeah. If you don't have flowing water, then you can use like well water. Right. If you don't have well water, then you can yeah. use like a pool of water. And if you don't have a pool of water, then you can use. A little bit, a cup of water. Right. If you don't have a, even a yeah. cup of water, you can use a couple of sprinkles. So as you discern, the point is, you, those are, that it's sort a very of, expansive. Right. Th- and what yeah. they're trying to do is accommodate the different situations where people are needing to live right. in community. Yeah. Whether there's a lot of water or a little water. How can we, how can we fulfill God's commands to yeah. baptize if we are limited in our resources? Good. That was a concern in the Middle Ages, too, when keeping water warm was not the easiest or cheapest thing to do. Um, so so those are, that's the kind of information that you would want uh, to, to have inform your, your, your discernment about what the Bible says about something. Um, so it's, it's a recommended way. It's a, it's a way of keeping sort of the peripheral arguments on the periphery and the central arguments on the center. Um, so let's, uh, you know, just let's take what I, what I would want to insist is one of the basic versions. And, and just go ahead and look at the Great Commission, if you will, Matthew 28. Matthew 28, the, uh, the uh, six, 16 and onward. Or 18, I suppose. Okay, these are the final words of Jesus in, in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, beginning with 18, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and catching them to obey everything that I have, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So you can interpret these as, you know, sort of final marching orders for the disciples. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to go. And then what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to make disciples. And how are you going to make disciples? Well, you're going to baptize them, and you're going to teach them. There. Now we can finally all agree on what's required of us in terms of baptism, right? <laughs> no, we still have these questions. You know, how much water to use? Uh, who does get baptism? Um, just anybody? I mean, should we open up the fire hoses and just baptize them all in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Um, in terms of uh, uh, children... Of believers, uh, do we baptize them? Um, when a grandmother um, is, is upset that the uh, that her children are not baptizing her grandchild, and she secretly does it, um, is, is that okay? Um, what do we understand is happening when uh, someone is baptized? Um, what are they doing? What is being done? Who is acting? Who is being acted upon? Uh, is, are any of those questions clear from Matthew 28? No. We, so we got to now bring in. For these other questions, we have to uh, bring in. Uh, some more material. But at least for Matthew 28, because we can make the argument these are Jesus' final words and instructions to the disciples, uh, baptism, the activity of baptism is, is central somehow. Why is it central? Well, maybe we have to look at the other passages uh, to determine that. Um, so uh, we can look at uh, Acts chapter 2. We'll go back to that one.
And uh, verse 38, when the people say, after hearing the first sermon about Jesus, they, they uh, ask what they should do, and Peter tells them, well, you should repent. And then he says, you should be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. So it's clear from that passage that those who are baptized receive the Holy Spirit immediately, isn't it? Some of you say yes. Does anyone want to say, no, it's not so clear. From that passage, it could be that after you're baptized, maybe somewhere down the line you'll receive the Holy Spirit. Your Pentecostalist friends will want to make that claim. You, you receive a measure of the Holy Spirit at baptism, but the full measure comes later. Okay. Um, were you going to say something? Some, some, some Pentecostalists will say that baptism in the name of Jesus, I'm sorry, he was talking about, we're talking about our Pentecostalist friends and how their ideas about baptism and the formula for baptism either differ quite a bit from us. Um, and so uh, in some Pentecostal circles, uh, baptism in the name of Jesus is what matters. Um, Father, Holy, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not so important. Other circles will say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is important as well as the name of Jesus. They'll do both. Um, go ahead, Jen. Um, I don't have any Greek. Uh, when it says you will receive the Holy Spirit, uh, does that mean immediately or does it mean eventually or what? Can you tell from the Greek? I wouldn't know right you now. Know. I'd have to look. Okay. Yeah. But it's, that's another good question. So you want to look at what the Greek says. We have this problem with English. Sometimes you don't get the exact narrow, narrowest sense of the language that might be available in the original. So in our discernment, it might be helpful to have someone who uh, can whip out the New Testament Greek and know what it says and answer that question, right? Um, uh, um, is it clear about uh, whether or not infants should be baptized in this passage? Okay, comment right here. I was thinking when I'm looking at that, it, it seemed like there was conviction beforehand because it talked about they were, their hearts were cut to the quick and then they were asked to be baptized and they would receive the Holy Spirit. To me, that would... Right. What should we do? Well, repent first. So. Yeah, a conviction, turn. a real yeah, right. understanding. And yeah. the, the, really, the idea of repentance is turn away the way you were going and go, go the, this new go way, right? God. Go toward yeah. God, right? Um, and crucify God's Son, that was clearly something in the wrong direction. Repent, right? Um, uh, and, and, and then be baptized, um, so you're, you're saying, if I'm understanding you correctly, you're suggesting that the act of repentance is something that's done consciously and therefore only the people who could repent are the ones who were told to be baptized. Are you suggesting something like that? Yes, in a way, I'm talking about receiving the Holy Spirit. I, I think that it indicates right. that there's a kind of a progression there. So you would not say then from this passage it's clear that just anyone who's baptized, let's say we open up the fire hoses and do that in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that everyone would receive the Holy Spirit. Just because they got water? No. Yeah, okay. Uh, isn't the whole subject of um, baptizing, that is within the Lutheran Church, of baptizing 
uh, babies. Uh-huh. Isn't that referred to the washing away of original sin and, and the indwelling that comes immediately f- from the Holy Spirit? Is, isn't that, for example, under your Lutheran confessions? Yeah, we'll look at that in just a moment. Um, the, the, uh, you know, what's, what's the official Lutheran position? You might want to know what that is as you discern now uh, what, the, what the Bible is saying about baptism. So we'll look at that. But the whole question of original sin, you know, the, the Roman Catholic idea is that baptism washes away original sin. And then the other sacraments, as you participate in those throughout your life, keep that original sin at bay, as it were, or keep um, the accidental effects of sin um, uh, away. Uh, Lutherans don't quite understand it that way. It, uh, baptism takes care of sin, period. That's the Lutheran understanding. So on that, where you said baptism takes care of sin, period, I think the, maybe the broader question is, what people ask is, if I'm baptized, then am I saved? All right. So that's another question, right? You bring in all these questions. And, uh, do you want to say that Hitler was saved or that Stalin was saved? Uh, what does the Bible say saves you? How does the Bible make clear that you are being saved? Faith in Jesus. Ah. So do you, are you, do you want to separate baptism from faith in Jesus? Can you separate baptism from... I'm asking honestly. Can you separate baptism from faith in Jesus? Just say a word about how. Can we get him? Microphone. Well, it seemed like um, there are people that uh, maybe never heard. Uh, I was going to say it. it maybe it's, it's kind of a prescription, but it's not a um, part of the formula. I mean, you can have faith. I can already believe. I could be converted, evangelized, and believe. And now I know that I'm saved, and yet I haven't gone through the ritual of baptism. Mm-hmm. So I think in that sense you can separate that. And then I could be struck by lightning and die. <laughs> so we, we actually know, we, we know it's possible at least to, to understand that someone can have faith, articulate faith even, and not be baptized yet. And I think we know it's also possible that people can be baptized. In fact, many people are baptized, but who not only don't articulate belief in Jesus Christ, but who articulate non-belief and maybe even worse, right? Mm-hmm. So we know that that's possible, that people do separate the two. Yeah, there was some question about when you receive the Holy Spirit earlier. And, well, when we read Romans earlier, it says that we're under the law of, of faith. Mm-hmm. Jesus taught, they talk, Paul talked about the law of faith. So it's by our faith that all this happens because we're under the law of faith okay. and, and grace. And so we, because of that, we, don't we receive the Holy Spirit immediately because of the faith? When we... I hope so. I'm counting on that. Yeah, here's, I, here's the question. We'll just make there the, was a question yeah. earlier about when yep, we exactly. received the Holy Spirit. That doesn't, I, I, thought, I always thought it was immediately because of our faith. And the faith of the person doing the baptizing. Does, does a reception of the Holy Spirit depend on your faith or your ability to articulate it? Or does, the reception of, does your faith depend upon having the Holy Spirit? Can you have faith? Can you say Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit? Well, the Bible would say no, or, or Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 would say, no, you cannot. Um, 
functioning as an initiation or a welcome or an acceptance by the overall Christian community into the community, a way of the community saying, we now claim this one for ourselves. We now want this one to uh, benefit from the same word that we receive. So you can definitely talk about baptism as a welcome and initiation, and you can talk about it as, as a, a, a something that comes with the original promise, uh, the first promise um, of Christ, and that we are going to um, continue what was begun in baptism, as the confessions say, um, by, uh, by a daily repentance. What does baptism mean for daily living? We'll look at that in just a sec. Um, it doesn't mean, oh, I can go ahead and do whatever I want. Uh, it doesn't mean I can renounce Jesus as my Savior. Baptism means for daily living, uh, <laughs> amen. And it means uh, turning to God, drowning the old self, raising up the new self in Christ every day. So that's a robust understanding of baptism, and it's part of our tradition, but it comes out of a deep um, uh, struggle and uh, encounter with this, not just what the scripture says, but what the church's history uh, has been on this important subject. We'll take one more, one more question down here. Yes, sir. Well, uh, I think it is informative to anybody that wants to really concern themselves about the sequence of the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit and so forth, is that the... Uh, uh, well, we agree that, that it's not possible to say Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit. Uh, you have also said that people, there, there's many examples of people that have been baptized that yeah. don't choose right. to do that. And so we do have the ability to reject the Holy Spirit. And if we do, we won't say Jesus is Lord. And that is the one unforgivable sin because it's self-fulfilling. Can I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Um, the sin against the Holy Spirit. And here, and here's some interesting law gospel stuff happening, right? Um, if, if I can reject the Holy Spirit, and there is a such thing as a sin against the Holy Spirit, which, you know, the way I interpret is to reject Christ. Um, uh, you know, have I done that? Do I know people who have done that? Um, uh, what about them? Should I go talk to them? Um, you know, so this is, that's, that's how law gets, gets operating here. Um, let's, if, I want to finish up this section by looking at, uh, you've got red books in front of you. And say whatever you want about the new hymnal. Uh, I like it um, in many ways, actually. There are just a few things I don't like about it. Um, but say what you want about it. The small catechisms in this one, friends. Um, and that's awesome. So uh, go to uh, the back of the red hymnal in front of you. So those of you who are interested in um, uh, attaching the label Lutheran to the more important label of Christian in your own self-identity, um, you might be interested in what um, the, the central Lutheran interpretations of Scripture have to say on some of these subjects. And so uh, the small catechism is one of those documents that Lutherans point to when uh, they want a little bit of assistance in determining what the Bible is saying to them. Uh, the Augsburg Confession would be another important document, and you might want to see what the Augsburg Confession has to say about baptism. I'll tell you what it has to say. It says, we baptize babies because babies, too, need the word of God in Jesus Christ. And baptism is how the word of God comes to all people. And we reject people who say you can be, uh, we reject those who say that children are saved without baptism. That's the Augsburg Confession on baptism. Uh, look at the page uh, 1165 there in the back. 
Okay, you just, we're not going to read all this. But the first one, what is baptism? Baptism is not simply plain water. Instead, it is water used according to God's command and connected with God's word. So Lutherans really don't have much confidence in the water. Right? That's not where the confidence for Lutherans t- uh, traditionally lies. The confidence for Lutherans uh, relies in the power of God's word. Right? Uh, the word goes out and it comes back uh, accomplishing what God sets out for that word to do. That's where the confidence for Lutherans lie. And so they want to say it's not just the water. The most important thing is the word that comes with the water and the power of that word. And that's why Luther could say, if there's no water, beer will do fine. Um, and then, and then some, some scripture passages are quoted, but if, if you go down then to um, one of the other concerns, you know, we don't just want people saying, oh, I'm baptized and being cavalier about it or saying, well, uh, you know, my baptism might have been interesting um, at the time, but it means absolutely nothing to me now. We don't want that. We recognize that baptism has consequences for daily, li- daily living. And so if you skip, if you go to the next page and look at number four, uh, what then is the significant significance of such a baptism with water? And the old way this question was put was, what does baptism mean for daily living? It signifies that the old person in us, with all sins and evil desires, is to be drowned, or in the older, in the older version, should be drowned and die through daily sorrow for sin and through repentance. And on the other hand, that daily a new person is to come forth and rise up to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. So the, the Lutheran idea recognizes some of the problems with saying, well, you hose them off, say the magic words, and they're in. Right? There's, a, there's, there's an implied command in baptism even, and that is each of us who are baptized um, live this kind of life in this kind of cycle, um, dying at the hands of the word of God, but being risen up again, uh, being raised from the dead at, God, at God's hands as well. And that's, that's, that's to happen over and over. Okay? Well, that's, then, you might be, then you might say, well, I don't do that. Right? And then does that mean you're not baptized? Again, the question is, who's the actor in baptism? Um, is, is it me uh, making a testimony uh, to my faith uh, and o- obeying a command um, after I've made a decision? Or is it God acting through the Christian community, bringing the word even to me and continuing to bring the word and inviting me to hear the word uh, so that my baptism may be renewed each day, this cycle of drowning and rising uh, every day. So those are the kinds of questions that that need to be asked. You you had one to go. Yeah. um, I noticed that he doesn't uh, address the question of infant baptism versus um, baptism after the age of maturity. And I wonder, is that because... There was no controversy in those days. The Roman Catholic Church was already doing it with infant baptism. Yeah, maybe let's, let's, we'll draw to a close this, the this baptism discussion on this important question. Infant baptism is not mentioned in the small catechism. It's almost the only thing that's mentioned in the brief section in the uh, Augsburg Confession, which is really the central external document for Lutherans. You other Christians, you want to know what us Lutherans believe? This is the idea of the Augsburg Confession. Read our Augsburg Confession. You Lutherans already, if you want some of the basics, read the small catechism or even the large catechism. But the Augsburg Confession is really the Lutheran claim by saying this is the Christian confession. And if you want to know what we say the Christian confession is, read this. And it's interesting what they're most concerned about 
um, is not even so much. Well, I'll, I'll read it. I'll read it for you real quick. It's very brief. <clears throat> uh, concerning baptism, our theologians teach that it is necessary for salvation. Uh, this is a line that really my dad has never gotten over. <laughs> I'm looking to people. Looking at people know my dad. Uh, concerning baptism, our theologians teach that it is necessary for salvation that the grace of God is offered through baptism and that children should be baptized, they are received into the grace of God when they are offered to God through baptism. They condemn, our theologians condemn the Anabaptists, uh, which is a Latin way of saying the re-baptizers, which is an older way of talking about your Baptist friends and non-denominational friends. We condemn those people who disapprove of the baptism of children and assert that children are saved without baptism. So that's, that's kind of the, the key uh, uh, sort of official external expression of the Lutheran position on bat- baptism. What do you think? Where is the biblical basis for that? Right? That's one good question to ask. Um, and, and you can follow that up with another question. Where is the biblical basis that children are saved outside of baptism. So you could ask that one both ways, and it does get asked both ways. Um, where's the biblical basis, you know, looking at the, from the Baptist point of view, where's the biblical basis for a so-called age of reason, whether it's 8 or 10 or 12, when you can make an informed decision about whether to be a follower of Jesus? So you can ask that question. But the other question is, where's the biblical basis that it's necessary to baptize uh, uh, babies? Otherwise, they won't be saved. Then you can talk about what does necessary mean. Does it mean exclusively? You know, what about the babies who don't get baptized? We can all have a lot of empathy for babies who don't get baptized or anyone who maybe never have a chance to hear about Christ, much less be baptized. What about them? That's a whole other discussion, an important one. But the Lutherans want to say, at least for Christians, baptism is central and it's necessary for all people in the community. We'll leave the other questions up to the grace of God. I'd like to do that. So there, it doesn't fix anything, is what I'm saying. The, the, the confession raises all kinds of other questions, too, right? You mean my Baptist friends are condemned because they won't baptize babies? I don't want to condemn my Baptist friends. Well, we are commanded to baptize. Yeah. But no place does it say you're saved by baptism. What you're saved by is belief in Jesus Christ. Right. Um, the, the, right? I think we can agree on that. The The... The language about baptism um, seems to be interested in bringing people into the community of the word and bringing people under the word. In a sense, initiating people into the community where the word is preached so that faith is created by the spirit. Sometimes, though, the two are linked, like in Mark 16, 16, um, right? Uh, He who is believed and is baptized shall be saved. But how does the rest of this verse go? He does not believe is already condemned. So you got baptism out of the second part, right? Um, so, yeah, so you're going to have to have some more conversations about what the Lutheran material is. But the Lutherans did not like, they could not find in the scripture the, the relatively new idea in those years that um, there was a thing, such a thing as an age of reason and only people who wanted to follow Jesus could receive baptism. They understood that the word of God uh, coming to an individual uh, with the power of the Spirit creating faith comes first, is primary. And baptism illustrates that when you give it to uh, 
any number of people who might not be able to say, I want this for myself, right? Um, you, you follow the Lutheran position, right? Because God's activity comes first and, and faith then develops uh, in response to that activity, um, that's why you baptize babies, because it's God's activity. The word is coming to that baby, and you keep on nurturing that word so that faith develops. All right. Anything else on baptism? You can, on week, you know, invite me back some other time and we'll just do baptism. <laughs> How are you going to... No. I do have a question, because yep. it seems to me when you baptize, it's more of a commitment of the parent and the church community to keep this child uh, trained in the word of God. And isn't there a connection in the Lutheran church between baptism and confirmation? Isn't that... Uh, that this is why you have to invite me back. No. Oh, oh there's not. <laughs> There is not. Uh, Luther thought that confirmation was um, Offenspiel. Offenspiel, monkey play. Monkey, monkey games. Um, and there was a reason for that. It's not the reason you think. Um, and then confirmation, the idea of confirmation was reintroduced by a fellow named Martin Busser, who maybe some of you remember. Um, as, when did Busser uh, first recommend reintroducing confirmation? 1550, I think. And then it didn't catch on immediately. Some churches did it, then other churches did it. By the time Lutheranism came to America, all Lutherans were doing it, yeah. But Luther didn't like it. We can talk about that another time. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, so it is, but here, here's, here's the question, right? Um, we are also uh, Christians living in America, where there is a, variety, a wide variety of Christianities. Our neighbors, our family members, maybe people we're married to, or our kids are going to, to churches that condemn infant baptism and uh, support a different view of baptism, and they support that view of baptism from the scripture, the same scripture we read. How do we get along with those people? That is another question to ask. Um, do we say they're not Christian? Well, Luther wanted to say that. You should see what he says about the Anabaptists. He hates them. He hated a lot of people, but he hates the... Uh, uh, you know, and, and of course, the Anabaptists, uh, a little bit later, when, when they ran afoul of the law, what was the favorite way to uh, execute an Anabaptist, a, re, a rebaptizer? This is a medieval sense of irony, right? You, you drown them in the river, just so many. Um, uh, but but that's, the, that's the question I want to finish with today. We, we, we know what it's like to have major differences of opinion about Christian doctrine and practice. Um, within our families, within our communities, within our neighborhoods. Um, uh, what does the Bible say about how we conduct ourselves in the middle of those divisions? How do we regard the people with whom we have those doctrinal divisions? And what kind of fellowship do and can we have with those kinds of people? Uh, that is, people who disagree, who we disagree with on uh, major interpretations of Scripture. So I w- that's another question that I want to ask, and that's what we're going to address at the end. I think that right now is a very important question um, for all kinds of reasons. So I want to sm- go ahead. I have a totally different opinion about that total subject. Okay, I haven't given my opinion yet. Well, okay. <laughs> well I, I believe that the only justification, whatever, for any differences in denominations is artistic sensitivity. Ah, can, can we just hold that? Right. Just hold on to that, okay? And the other, the I think other, you and I have some things in common. Well, the other correlation to that is that anybody that chooses to fight over or disagree violently or in, in any way about such subjects is dealing in sophistry, which is not biblical. All right. 
just put that on the, on, on the table right now. I'm going to have you say, remember sophistry and remember artistic license? Is that what you use? Remember those two terms. And we'll come back to those this afternoon. Okay. Um, but you don't want to say that, um, uh, that when you tell me uh, my infant baptism uh, is invalid, um, that's okay. You don't want to say that, do you? You, you still want to say, no, my infant baptism is valid, and here's why. You, you still want to have a place to maybe discuss the differences. Um, but you can do that artistically, and you can do that without sophistry. So we're going to remember those two terms uh, after lunch. Okay, moving on to um, the Lord's Supper. This one's a little bit, uh, a, a little bit more streamlined, uh, but just to give you the idea that you know these are uh, t- two major activities that all Christians do in one way or another, and yet where there's deep division... Uh, about them. What do Lutherans call baptism and uh, the Lord's Supper? Sacraments, right? And uh, what do your Baptist friends, for instance, or your Calvinist friends, who are Baptists are kind of Calvinists, what do they call them? What's that? Oh, sacraments. Your Baptist friends aren't going to call them sacraments. Some Calvinists might. Uh, maybe some Baptists do. Um, uh, the baptism, um, baptism and the Lord's Supper together are often called ordinances, if you remember that one. Um, what's the word sacrament mean? Anyone remember this? As, as a sacrament is a pledge in the Latin language, and it's a legal term. Uh, it's a pledge or a vow that you make, and often it's a pledge or a vow that has some kind of has some kind of legal process to it, you know, a signature, like a contract, right? Um, that's, that's the original language of sacrament. And then as the church developed, uh, that language is used to um, identify baptism in the Lord's Supper, as well as some other things, such as marriage or ordination, even confirmation. You know, what are the seven sacraments in the Roman church? Baptism, Lord's Supper, confirmation, marriage, ordination, Confession, which you do, you know, penance. And the last one, good, you got them all, last rites. Okay, that, those seven sacraments are a development. You're not going to find the term sacrament uh, attached to those things in the New Testament. You're not even going to find it in the early church. So our use of that as Lutherans, of that term, is, is something that comes out of the development of the church. And, and um, if you're going to ground the use of that term in the Bible, you're going to make some pretty uh, complicated connections, but I think you can do it. Uh, But the idea of the sacrament is that there's a pledge involved. There's a vow involved. Um, Who's making the vow in the sacrament? Who's making it in baptism? God. Who's making it in the Lord's Supper? God, Lutherans and Catholics uh, would want to say. Catholics would want to say that about the other five sacraments as well. Um, But... Uh, other friends in other denominations don't like the word sacrament so much, uh, or an ordinance. That sounds a little bit less, I don't know, mysterious or Catholic. Um, so uh, you, you have that common. Um, uh, looking at the Lord's Supper now, what does the Bible say about the Lord's Supper? For all the different practices there are about the Lord's Supper, what does the Bible say? Um, leave that question hanging. Tell you a story. Uh, how many of you uh, remember Promise Keepers? The Promise Keepers movement. How many of you... Uh, is Promise Keepers still going? It's still going. Yeah. Um, uh, but you remember in the 90s, this was a big deal, the Promise Keepers. I mean, it was on the cover of magazines and 
they're filling the Oakland Coliseum, and uh, I don't know if they still fill the Oakland Coliseum, but I know there's still gatherings. Well, I was a pastor in Lodi uh, in, the, in the mid-90s, and we had some, um, a men's group that sort of formed on their own uh, and, and joined Promise Keepers, and they were coming back from the Promise Keepers events. Uh, you know, they were just ready to go. You know, they had guns ablazing. They were uh, very enthused about their faith, very enthused about the support they were getting in their faith from other men, very, very enthused about the idea that there was a God in Jesus Christ who cared about their lives and how they lived their lives and could be, um, uh, could be followed so that th- their lives could be amended for the better. And so we had men in this congregation whose lives were changed for the better, whose marriages were, were better and whose uh, work lives were better. And so this was a big deal and there was a lot of enthusiasm about it. Um, so much so that they had a pastor's promise keepers in Atlanta in 1996. And this men's group uh, came to me and my associate. Anyone remember Larry Getty? Does that name ring a bell? No. I served with him for two years in Lodi. And uh, uh, these men came to us and said, we would like to send you to the National Pastors Promise Keepers event. And so, you know, Larry and I saw the opportunity for a free junket. No, we didn't. We said, oh, wow, that's great. And so, uh, and so we, we went to the Promise Keepers event in Atlanta, which was just for clergy. And uh, you might not remember this, but one of the controversies at the time, of course, for that event, and this was in the newspapers also, was that they made it explicit that the invitation was to what kind of clergy? Male, Male clergy, right? Um, uh, the bishop, who is a member of my congregation, uh, uh, has a daughter uh, who I love very much, and she's very vocal. And when she found out we were going to this men's only promise keepers group, uh, she said, you got to protest. You can't do it. You can't do it. I said, I'm not, you know, that's going to be messy. Turns out there were a lot of women who, um, because of this, uh, just, uh, just came and said, what will happen if we show up? And they showed up. And what do you think happened? They came in. They let them in, right? So what are you going to do? So anyway, so we go. So and they are speakers, and you know some of them I agree with, some of them I don't. Some of them I say yeah, and some of them not so much. But it was a great event to see this um, the, the arena in Atlanta filled. What's it's called the Peach Dome or something? I don't know what it's called. Um, and so all these men together, and you know praise and good sermons and teaching and so forth, and and it, it was good to be a part of that. Well, on the last day, they decided we're going to try to do. Holy Communion, Eucharist, Lord's Supper, with all these different Christians from all over the place. In fact, I saw um, Catholic priests walking around, you know, big collars, and, or, or men I imagined were Catholic priests. Um, across this one guy with a big cassock, he looked like he was from an Eastern church. Um, so people from all over, and they're going to try to do Holy Communion. I'm thinking, well, this will be interesting because of the different understandings and ways that people do Holy Communion, and also the fact that that at the point of communion, that's where a lot of Christians will draw the line at fellowship. We can eat together, we can talk together, we can sit in the pews and worship together, we can pray together, but sharing a table with you, that's where I've got to draw the line, right? So that's a place where Christians are really good at drawing the line. So I thought, well, this is going to be interesting. How are they going to pull this one off? Um, in a big dome like this with, what, 36,000 people or something, you know? Um, so, so the day came, and uh, this, is how, this is how they did it. Uh, the, the first thing they did was one of the leaders got up and, and basically said what I just said. This is a place where Christians usually draw the line and divide themselves from others in terms of fellowship and don't participate. 
if you are one of those Christians who cannot share this fellowship that we're about to have uh, in this um, ordinance, sacrament, memorial, presence, whatever, you know, if, if, you, cannot, if you cannot participate, uh, you are uh, absolved. You can, you can stay and watch and observe, or you can leave the building altogether. So they, gave, they recognized that communion causes a divide and is kind of the line in the sand for a lot of people. And they gave permission to people who couldn't cross that line to watch or leave, which I thought was cool. Then it came time for communion, and the music was playing and, and softly. And I'm thinking, well, this is going to be interesting, because I'd worked at a church in the Netherlands where we alternated. Sometimes uh, we went forward to receive the elements, and sometimes we did the Reformed fashion where we stayed in the pews to receive the bread and wine. So I was thinking, are they going to have us go forward, or are they going to keep us in the pews? And I'm thinking, I don't see people going to stations, so I think we're sitting in the pews. So um, we, we, stay, we, we were asked to stand, and, and we're singing some songs, and as we're singing songs, uh, they pass out the communion elements. And the communion elements are, think, think of a, a little container of creamer that you might get. Have you seen these? They're, they're, I think these were invented for promise keepers. Uh, a little container of creamer, and inside the container is a hermetically s- a sealed shot, for lack of a... <laughs> No, I'm sorry, for lack of a better word, a hermetically sealed shot of grape juice, sealed, and then on top of that, another seal with a wafer inside. Okay? And, and, they're, and they're coming around with buckets of these things, and people just distributing them, and we're staying, we're staying seated as these things are coming. And so we all have uh, the, the, um, uh, the, the elements. And then uh, we were instructed to you know, take out the wafer and peel off this, you know, which kind of... I'm just kind of thinking, okay, pretend this is not happening. <laughs> this is not part of my usual uh, experience of communion, but I'm, I'm going with it. And um, uh, then I'm thinking, now what's going to happen? And this is what happened. They read verbatim uh, the passage where Paul says to the Corinthians in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, here's what I received from the Lord and pass on to you. Okay, they didn't read that. They just read what comes after that. Paul's words about Holy Communion. Uh, which will be very familiar to all of you because most of that is in our formula for communion. That is all they said. That is all they said. They didn't say anything else, no Eucharistic prayer, nothing. Uh, No comment before that. So we were just instructed to get the elements ready. And then those words from 1 Corinthians 11 were read. And then it was just presumed that everyone was going to do what the person who was presiding over communion did. And so the person held up uh, the wafer, the bread, and put it on his tongue. And then he held up the cup, and everyone else put it on their tongue and, and ate it, and then held up the cup. And again, without words, without any words whatsoever, uh, drank. Um, and then that was it. There was no prayer. Um, there was just a new song. And I can't remember the song, although I'm just about to come to me. It's a praise song. Oh, anyway. It's a praise song. So lilting music. It's just one that makes you want to put your hands in the air. But if you don't like doing that, you're going to do this, right? So it was those songs. And as soon as, so the communion was taken with only those words from 1 Corinthians 11 said, no other words, no prayer. Uh, Everyone took it. And then they went into the song. And some people immediately put their hands up in the air. And uh, a lot of us who just can't do that, we're, you know, being grumpy. (laughs) And so, and then here's, and then here's what happened next. Jack Hayford, who knows that name? Right? Jack Hayford from a Church in the Way, uh, Church on the Way. I worked in L.A. We used to call it Church in the Way. Uh, 
church on the way in um, Van Nuys, California. Uh, uh, I don't know if this was planned, if he was supposed to do this or not, but he took the microphone and he said, I know many of you are uncomfortable uh, raising your hands in praise. I know it's not part of your tradition. I want to recognize that you can just as legitimately worship with your hands down as you can with your hands up. But I would like to ask you, uh, on behalf of the entire fellowship here, if, um, as a sign of togetherness and unity, uh, you can put your hands in the air. So, you know, people around, okay, I guess so. Maybe just one. Um, so I'm standing with Larry Getty. And I'm thinking, and this is true, I'm thinking, this is law, this is law, this is law. I can't do it, I can't do it, I'm not going to do it. So I might have been the only one in the whole place, and Larry too, who you know, stubbornly putting our hands down. So basically, we ruined the whole experience for ourselves. I, I, you know, looking back on it now, I'm kind of ashamed about the whole thing. But right, that's, what are you, what's it going to look like when all of us are going to be gathered around the table, at least those of a certain gender persuasion? Um, it's, it might look something like that. Um, what is going on there? Um, this is a good way to, to let as many people feel comfortable as being part of sharing the table together in a place where, where it was okay to do that, where in other places they might not share a table with each other. Um, so that was good. And they, did, they tried to have as much respect for everybody there as possible and as many of the tra- traditions as possible. And they tried to do everything without any kind of coercion or legalism, Right. Very impressive thinking, thinking back on the whole thing. What does the Bible say about Holy Communion? What's wrong with that? What if that's just what it says? Right? Everyone get together, take a little bread and a little wine, and uh, say the words that Paul uh, received from, from, uh, from those who knew Jesus, and um, that's it. You've got to boil down to the most basic, I suppose. Well, some of us are going to say, well, let's see what the Bible says about it. So what does the Bible say? Let's just quickly identify some of the passages. Not as many as with baptism. Um, what does the Bible say about the Lord's Supper? Just go ahead and bark them out, and I'll just I'll repeat them, Dave. What, passage, what passages do you want to look at as you discern, as we discern together, what the Bible says about the Lord's Supper? Yep. You definitely want to look at that. So you're going to look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, and those descriptions of the Lord's Supper. You're going to find something really interesting, and that is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, you have the sharing of the Passover meal, and you have Jesus saying words to his disciples over that meal. Slightly different words in each of those three Gospels. John's Gospel. What's going on at the Last Supper in John's Gospel? What's that? Uh, yeah, there might be a problem with which day exactly it is, um, but what is happening at the event? Foot washing. Is there any uh, sharing of the bread or any mention of the sharing of the bread or drinking the wine or Jesus saying any words over the bread and wine, such as take and eat, this is my body? Oh, good, 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 good. All right, nice. Okay, there is, in John's account of the Last Supper, uh, there's no mention of Jesus and his disciples eating or drinking and Jesus saying any words over the food. Um, instead, uh, just before they, uh, at the very end, it says, uh, and when they had finished eating, uh, they went out. All of them went out. So there is mention that they had a meal. It's just you don't have the details that you have in the three Gospels. But where does John's um, 
sort of Lord's Supper theology come in. In chapter 6, this crazy language about, uh, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you do not abide in me and I do not abide in you. So that's where that stuff comes from. It comes in John chapter 6, before the Lord's Supper. And, and people are going, all right, this guy's completely crazy. And that's when people, uh, when John reports, um, uh, people started to leave. They stopped following and when Jesus saw all these people departing after he said this crazy stuff about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, Jesus looked at the people who remained and said, well, what about you? What are you guys going to do? Are you going to stay or go? And that's where Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And that's the context of that liturgical verse that we do before we listen to the gospel. Yeah. One thing different about John, he, he compares it with in Moses's time yep. with the yep. manna yep. coming down. The exactly. Yeah. So nobody you, else does that, but he does it. Exactly. And so here's the thing. Which passages are we going to consider in this question? What does the Bible say about the Lord's Supper? Well, yes, uh, we want the material from the Gospels that actually say what Jesus said as the bread and wine was shared at the Lord's Supper. And we'll find that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I mean, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John, we get something different. We get this uh, odd chapter 6 that starts with Jesus saying, uh, you came to me because I fed you, uh, you know, all the bread you wanted to eat, and I did it just out of a few loaves. Uh, that's why, you've, why you followed me here. Um, um, you know, just like the people um, uh, in, 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 the, uh, in the wilderness. Right? All you care about is your belly. You don't care about me. Uh, you just care about having your belly filled. And then he goes on to say, I am the bread of life. I am the manna uh, come from heaven. And then he goes on to say, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. Do you want to include that in this discussion about what does the Bible say about the Lord's Supper? Why? Why do you want to include that? Right, so you've done, you've done the move. Um, what other... What other Bible, what, is, what else does the Bible say about this, right? Because in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus says in all of them, this is my body, right? He says a lot of other things too, but at least he says that um, in those three. Because he says that, we want to see where else Jesus is saying that kind of stuff. And John 6 is definitely one. So we want to put that in the hopper for potential uh, places to understand what does the Bible say about the Lord's Supper. What else? Oh, they, they ate and drank together, right? So end of Acts chapter 2, that, that there was a meal fellowship. Uh, do you want to include the Old Testament material? Do you want to include uh, manna from heaven? Read that story. Do you want to include the Passover story? Since Jesus is clearly connecting what's going on at his Last Supper with the Passover meal. So maybe you want to go look at, um, you know, Acts, uh, not Acts, Exodus, what is it? 12 or 13, right, about, the, uh, about what the Passover meal is. What does it mean when you eat a lamb? What's the lamb doing? What's the function of the lamb in that story or the lamb's blood? So what do you think? You want to look at that one too, right? So you're going to look at that one. Um, uh, what else? What else are you going to look at? Right, the one at the end of Acts where, where disciples are having uh, fellowship together over the meal, maybe especially the Passover meal. Um, what about uh, the story at the end of Luke, um, the Two followers of Jesus uh, going going home to Emmaus, and uh, the stranger pulls up alongside, and uh, they don't recognize him until when? Until he breaks the bread. You want to include that one too? Why not? Let's include that one too. 
I think you can include that one. I think it's important to include that one. Why? Because the earliest Christians included that one. From the very get-go, um, uh, Irenaeus again, and against the heresies, makes clear that the story about those disciples on the road to Emmaus is connected with our understanding of what's happening in the Lord's Supper. So yeah, you'd want to include that for sure, right? Everyone knows this story, the road to Emmaus, if you don't. It's uh, um, Luke chapter 22. 24. Nice long story. It's a lot of people's favorite uh, resurrection story, certainly. Uh, it's certainly one of mine. Is it Luke 24? Yep. Oh, yeah. Um, so we, we want to include that. Um, let me just suggest one other one, and this is the one we're going to look at. Uh, let's look at 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. First Corinthians. What's that? Oh, in First Corinthians 11. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we can talk about that. What about uh, by the side of the lake where he's cooking fish? Oh, that's a good question. Do you want to, Do you want that one? This one's in John, right? Um, there's another meal that Jesus actually has. The resurrected Jesus prepares for the disciples and then shares that meal. Um, there's nothing about, nothing about wine and there's nothing about bread, but it's a meal. It's these fish. Do you want to include that one? Why not? But I would, I would argue that's one of these peripheral ones. It's not one that's going to create the framework like the ones from the, go, the, the Gospels' accounts of the Last Supper. But why not? What, how does Jesus eat? And why does Jesus eat? Right? What does he say? Uh, I think it's another resurrection account in John where he appears to the door and says, Peace be with you. Everyone's afraid. And then he says, Do you have something to eat? But what does it mean that Jesus, that, that we, we are made to know that Jesus is corporeal, uh, so corporeal? He's not a ghost. He's not a phantom. He is corporeal. He has a new body, a, a resurrected body, a risen body, and it's a body that eats, right? What it, maybe we want that in there. I think that's interesting because it will at least inform us about the importance of eating. Uh, look at 10, uh, chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. Uh, Uh, where is it? Uh, look at verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Okay, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So I read that verse and I think of this Promise keepers, male only event. You know, at least there was the male half of the one body, perhaps, um, represented in one way or the other. Um, uh, so, do we want this in there? Of course, we want this in there, right? Definitely, we want this in there. Paul's, Paul's talking about a practice that uh, Christians have been up to uh, since he joined the movement. And uh, he's making it central to this argument about how we treat our bodies and what we put in our bodies and what our bodies worship in terms of idols and so forth. And it's right there in the middle of that, in that context that Paul is bringing in what we take into ourselves by eating and drinking um, this bread, this wine. I can't remember where the passage is where it talks about for forgiveness of sins. It was in my catechism. I remember that. Oh, that's, those are Jesus' own words. And then we're going we're gonna to run into him right here. Ah, 
Jesus says them at the Last Supper. I don't know in which one, but they're definitely remembered by uh, Paul. Let's uh, just go to the next chapter and look at uh, verse 17. Oh, no, but I think you're right, Jan. This doesn't talk about the forgiveness of sins. So I think that's from the, uh, the other one. Now, in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. So and this is the context of these words that are to come. I hear that there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. Indeed, there have to be, uh, indeed, there have to be factions among you, for only so will it become clear who among you are genuine. When you come together, it's not really to eat the Lord's Supper, for when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper, and one goes hungry, and another becomes drunk. You can imagine what kind of Lord's Supper this must have been. (laughs) What? Do you not have homes to eat or drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing by your rapacious eating and drinking? What should I say to you? Should I commend you? In this matter, I do not commend you. Now listen. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took a loaf of bread, and we had given thanks. He broke it and said, This is my body. That is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So you're right, Jan, the forgiveness of sins is not part of that formula. Uh, and then it continues, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and the blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves, and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body, eat and drink judgment against themselves. For this reason, many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves, if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If you are hungry, eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for your condemnation. About the other things, I will give instructions when I come. And don't you wish you knew what the other things were? <laughs> Maybe that's what, it, that's what 2 Corinthians is about. Maybe that's what we're seeing there. All right, go ahead. Uh, regarding the forgiveness uh, text, Matthew 26. There you go. So it's Matthew's version. Yep. Thank you. All right. So we want to know what the Bible says about um, the Lord's Supper. And incidentally, the Lord's Supper is the only term for the, the meal that's used in, in Scripture. So uh, Eucharist comes out of a later tradition. Holy Communion comes out of a later tradition. Uh, valid traditions, I would say. But each of those, in a way... Um, emphasizes different aspects of what different Christians might think is going on in the Lord's Supper. So if you call the supper or the meal Eucharist, the Greek word for Thanksgiving, maybe you're emphasizing that aspect of it. If you call it Holy Communion, maybe you're emphasizing the togetherness aspect or the, you know, the, the gathered assembly or community aspect of it. 
if you call it the Lord's Supper, you're emphasizing the eating and the drinking. Um, uh, so um, sacrament of the altar is, also, is what Lutherans have called it uh, and other Christians. So what does the Bible say? Uh, clearly, from the passages we just mentioned and the one we just saw, uh, we know that when we eat the, uh, the bread and uh, drink the, the, the cup, um, we are eating Jesus' physical body and uh, his physical blood, right? That's clear. No? You're not saying, you know? No? Well, why do, why do Christians, including Lutheran Christians, want to insist that that is what we were doing? Are you going to answer my question? Or you got another one? that we're taking the body and blood and all the other people don't believe that. They, all, they always say, the Protestants, even Lutherans, say it is just a symbol but we really believe it's the body and blood. And we're the only ones that do. They'll say that. This, these are Catholics when you go to the Catholic yeah. Church. I hear that. I hear that. Why do Christians care so deeply here, including historically, about getting the language right on this supper? Um, uh, the Roman Catholics will say that about Lutherans even because we hedge a little bit um, in our sort of official uh, understanding of what's going on in the Lord's Supper. We'll say that when you eat, you are eating bread and you're eating wine. Um, with the bread and wine, or in with and under, if you like that way of thinking about it, um, you are also taking in or eating uh, and drinking the Lord's body and blood. Bread stays bread, wine stays wine, but with it comes in a way we don't understand you physicists can work it out, quantum mechanics and all that. Um, in a way we don't understand, we are also taking in um, the risen Christ bodily. Okay, That's the Lutheran hedge. The, the Catholics will say they're hedging. The Catholics will say the bread goes away, the wine goes away, there's no longer physical, substantial property of bread or wine. Now it's all Jesus. That's the Catholic position, which is called transubstantiation, right? Yeah. The idea when the words are said and the bell rings... Didn't that the, start with Aquinas? Uh, Aquinas developed it. Definitely he developed it, yeah. But it starts before Aquinas. I mean, it's a really interesting history. Um, in, in, in kind of a breathtaking, chill-giving history on, 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 the de- on, on the development of this argument. You know, what is the supper? What are we taking in? What happens? And it seems like some of the people who make these sort of extreme, what we would, some of us would consider extreme claims, right? Bread goes away, body of Jesus takes its place. Wine goes away, blood of Jesus takes its place. What they really seem to be interested in, this is how I kind of put the spin on it, is when Jesus says at the end of Matthew 28, lo, I will be with you always, how close can he get to us? That's what I think really is what's at the heart of these deep and, and somewhat complicated uh, arguments about what's going on in the Lord's Supper. So I'm, 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 I'm willing to give the Roman Catholics that. I also like the Lutheran position. I like some reform positions. Uh, and there are other reform positions that, that I don't like so well. But I think at the heart of this is people want Jesus and they want him close at hand, about as close as you can get. There's a lot of ways to do that, singing music, um, you know, experiencing the joy of family relationships, I suppose, um, seeing his face in the service of a neighbor. But for some reason... Uh, it's this act of eating and drinking in community that Christians have historically experienced and wanted to talk about the experience of having the risen Christ there. 
right? So that's what's going on here. And you brought it up with the, the, the transubstantiation thing. Where does it start? It's in Aquinas because he develops it into doctrine, but it's way before that also. Pardon me? Well, Augustine. Yeah, almost 1,800 years before. Augustine wants to also say how Jesus is present in the Lord's Supper. Uh, there's some council, you know, some of the church councils, not the first one, but some of the other ones address the matter. I'm not sure. I can't think of any others. Yeah. Uh, I'm a bit bothered about this uh, Catholic Lutheran uh, not quite agreeing with each other on Holy Communion. I did quite a lot of reading when Vatican II happened and post-Vatican yep. II. Uh, I have quite a lot of connections with people in the Roman Church. And I thought I had understood at one point that the Lutherans and the Roman Catholics had pretty well agreed to agree or accept each other's views of Holy Communion. And now I'm hearing from various places that's not true. And I would like to know where I got my initial idea if I've been off base for all these years. I would, I, if there is, I, I would, I don't know if there's any sort of official agreement that has the weight of, say, the joint declaration on the doctrine of justification oh, does. There might be theologians yeah. who have been talking about it and talking about the similarities. You know, sometimes, frankly, Luther sounds about as Roman Catholic as you can get well, on the subject of the Lord's he Supper. Was one. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> um, and, and the idea of sort of making the distinction between um, the, the bread and wine. Um, staying or not staying in, yeah. in physical properties is, is split in hairs, it's or as you said, artistic yeah. license or sophistry. Yeah. It's probably the usual thing. It depends on the community and the priest or yeah. the pastor. Yeah, yeah. in terms of the Roman Catholics. Here's what's going on. I'll just say this real quick and then kind of move us toward lunch. Um, uh, I have some friends who are in, in, Stra- in Strasbourg, and they want to uh, work with some of their Roman Catholic friends. Uh, to follow the route that Luther walked when he went from Wittenberg to Rome in 1510, 500 years ago, and bring to some representative of the Pope a document uh, recommending that the Pope de-excommunicate or re-communicate Luther, that is, remove the ban or the excommunication from Luther, in a sense saying, we're pretty much on board with Luther. He was right after all, at least in terms of the way he read Augustine or something like that, you know. Uh, so you do have Roman Catholics and Lutherans interested in doing this work of saying we're so close on the essentials that we can kind of remove the old lines that separate us, uh, including on on Lord's Supper, including on the Lord's Supper. Well, it's mystery anyway. It's mystery anyway, and that's what a lot of the Reformed are saying now, too. Uh, the, the Reformed will say real presence, uh, but they won't say that Christ is physically with the elements. He's spiritually with the elements. And they won't say your body uh, unites with Christ uh, here in the here and now. They will say your body, when you take the Lord's Supper, unites with Christ in the ether or in some other plane, some spiritual plane. Right. So that's the way some reformed are nuancing this. But again, the idea is, you know, we want our Jesus and we want to be as close to him as possible. And historically, where people report that and want it to happen is uh, in the the experience of the supper with the gathered community. So um, is there scriptural warrant for saying that the bread uh, is Jesus' body and you are eating Jesus' body and the blood, the, the wine is Jesus' blood and you're drinking Jesus' blood when you take the supper? 
Can you substantiate that from Scripture? Uh, you can you can if you take uh, at least a verse where he says take and eat this is my body. Uh, you can if you understand John six where Jesus says unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood you can do that. With the passage in First Corinthians you can say this is a fellowship with my body when we drink eat the bread. So there are different passages that kind of get to this thing where in the act of eating and drinking I'm having some kind of experience of the body and blood of Christ. Uh, I think of course you can. Um, establish that from the scripture and they were doing that from the very beginning um, can you take the other point of view which is, would be shared by many American Christians and that is that uh, the bread is a symbol of the body that was sacrificed on the cross 2,000 years ago and the wine or the grape juice is a symbol of the blood that was shed on the cross 2,000 years ago and in fact uh, what we are doing when we are taking the supper is memorializing or remembering what Jesus did in body and blood 2,000 years ago. Can you uh, substantiate that from Scripture? Yeah, you can. Uh, But what do you have to do? You have to say, for instance, uh, where Jesus says, take and eat, this is my body. You have to say, Jesus was meaning that this is like my body, or this is um, an image of my body. He didn't mean it literally. And of course, that's the origin of the divide between uh, the Lutheran position, um, or the original evangelical position, and the Reformed position. Um, where Luther, uh, representing the Lutherans and others, and Zwingli, before Calvin was around, representing the Reformed uh, position, they go to this city called Marburg, 1529, and they try to see if they can't come to some agreement on uh, this new teaching. They hammer out 15 articles. They agree on 14. You know, who is Jesus? How are we saved? What's the Holy Spirit doing? Uh, What is baptism doing? They agree on all of those, 14. 15th one is about the Lord's Supper. Right? And there's great stories about this, and we have uh, written accounts by the eyewitnesses watching this happen. Right? Uh, um, Zwingli, Oclampadius, uh, some of the others there uh, just cannot go all the way with Luther when he says, when Jesus says is, he means is. And when Oclampadius says, well, how does he mean is? I mean, how can he be present if we don't see him? Luther says, in a sense, what I said earlier, we'll let God worry about the physics. He uses the word math, actually. We'll let God worry about the math. But Luther wants, will not let go of the word is. It needs to be taken literally. Um, and Zwingli can't go there with him. And so that's sort of the beginning of, of the divide between the Reformed, which I think predominate in Protestantism in this country, and the Lutheran position. So, Can you substantiate it from Scripture? Yes. But how do we, how do we know that the interpretation we have is the one that God wants us to have? Well... We pray about it. We understand the spirit works. And maybe with these different interpretations, the spirit is trying to do something different. Maybe show us that given some of the nuances, we can have these differences of opinions and maybe there's other things that we need to unite around. Maybe that's one option, an option we'll talk about after lunch. Is there a question or two? Yeah, go ahead. You know, it's kind of along the lines of what the gentleman in the front row is saying. And I was musing as you were just talking you know, what is it that brings certain issues to the forefront and makes yeah. them really controversial? Uh, I think in the Middle Ages, the philosophers debate about how many angels dance on the head of the pin. Nowadays, we don't care about yeah. how many angels dance right. on the head of the pin. So why do some of these issues really come to the forefront? And you, you kind of explain a bit when you talk about uh, Swing and Luther getting together and talking about the, those 15 items. But it seems to also go through ways of fashion and social, you know, social changes that these issues come up and cause the divides and schisms. 
Yeah, I think that's true, um, especially now, I suppose, with the argument about ordinations and sexuality. Yeah. But there's social conditions that have informed that conversation. I'm just trying to think how that works um, with the discussion about the Lord's Supper. Um, what, why it is so important. And if you think about it, if you look at the history of this, Luther, when he wrote these tracts, um, a, a good chunk of them are about the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. Right. Um, you know, I think there's 12 separate tracts that Luther writes just on how to understand what's happening in the Lord's Supper and, and condemning, condemning the positions that don't agree with his. Yeah. And uh, even in the Catholic Church, it's, it's very variable. I've been to many Catholic services and I usually ask the priest ahead of time, you may have participated in the Lord's Supper and you're half the time they say yes, half the time they uh, say no. At least you ask. Yeah. If I'm in a Missouri church, I'll just go and wait for someone, wait for someone to kick me out. Well, microphone? Oh, did you have a question too? Okay. I've got one. Uh, go, you go and then Jim. And then Just we'll, a point. Yeah. And that, that to me... You're uh, second. I'm going to let him go. Go ahead. Sorry, Jim. You can get him I'm your pastor. Lunch. You have to wait for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, for me, I, I think uh, an important distinction between Roman Catholic and Lutheran, uh, aside from what we've been talking about, is the direction... Uh, the important direction of, of what's taking place in the sacrament. Uh, I, I see us as Lutherans recognizing the direction from God to us. You know, the, the words for you or given mm-hmm. for you mm-hmm. are, are the important words in the sacrament. In the Roman Catholic Church, the direction seems to be from us to God. The sacrifice of the Mass, you know, offering this up to God. So to me, the direction yep. is, is very different. That's very true. And that was sort of the original um, complaint from the Lutherans was this idea of the re-sacrifice or the representation of a re-sacrifice that the supper had become something that we do to uh, earn God's mercy and grace. And they wanted to make clear that is, that's not the case. And so when they revised the Mass, they took that language out. It's the first thing they did. Um, but th- this issue of uh, why, why it's important to say this is the body and that you take Jesus internally when you eat the bread and the cup, um, it really relates to the incarnation for the Lutherans. When, when they see the reform saying, well, Jesus is on the right hand of God and therefore can't be present in the bread and wine, um, uh, you know, the finite can't contain the infinite was, was the claim of the reformed. The Lutherans wanted to say, no, the finite can contain the infinite, that's what the incarnation is about. And in a way, the Lord's Supper is a reincarnation uh, in a very particular way uh, of the risen and ascended Christ. Um, and so they, that's, that's what was at stake there, um, the, the, uh, the doctrine of the incarnation itself. So that you can see that one's pretty important. And that's, what, in the end, what they were fighting about. Jim? Well, to me, uh, a very important aspect, which I don't think, unless I, didn't, unless I missed it, is the what takes place before that. In other words, the, the whole subject of confession, the very fact that we, um, if we have not prepared ourselves in mm-hmm. effect for all this, that we can eat and drink to our damnation. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, we... I think that often we take the whole subject of confession just sort of, okay, read the words in the 
that are written in the text, you know, but, but uh, where we all stand with that relative to our hearts and our minds and the importance of it is equally as vital as to what we receive when our hearts are right. So in some Lutheran traditions you had coming out of Europe, you had uh, long confessions. And if you look at some of the old Lutheran masses that were written, uh, long confessions and opportunities to confess your sins quietly or to another just before the Lord's Supper, right? Just before it took place. Uh, and then you had a later tradition that evolved where the confession preceded worship, as it does for many of us. And now you have some services that have communion with no order for corporate confession or individual confession whatsoever. So something's been lost there a little bit, divorcing confession with the Lord's Supper. Now, When I was young, we actually got down on our knees <laughs> prior to confession. You know. how, many of you are, uh, how many of you are pastors here? All right. Um, my, my mother was raised in a Reformed tradition in Holland, and they had communion four times a year. And prior to communion, the weeks prior to communion, the um, pastor would come around to the houses in his parish. Everyone would gather around the pastor, and uh, he would talk about the importance of confessing sin. He would not necessarily be the confessor um, and listen to the confession, but he would talk about the importance of confessing sin, name potential sins, exhort his parishioners uh, to spend the days in preparation for communion to confess sin, reminding them that just before communion they'd have a big chance to confess all their sins, right? So uh, that seems to me to take seriously the material that, that we read about from 1 Corinthians 11, that, that there's um, uh, some preparation involved. Now, how does law and gospel work there? You know, are we going to legalize uh, the reception of these gifts, saying that if you, you know, you have to do something to receive them. So the Lutherans, of course, uh, struggled with this. And so maybe our last word will be, if you look at the uh, small catechism on uh, the sacrament of the altar on page 1166, uh, it wrestles with this question. Uh, what is it to receive the sacraments worthily? Do I have to confess all my sins? Do I have to do, confess all the sins right up to the point of Holy Communion? Uh, do I have to just confess the most important ones? Uh, do I have to really be sorry uh, for my sins? Or is it just enough to name them? Uh, or do I have to really, really, really be sorry? Um, how sincere does my confession have to be in my contrition and so forth? Uh, all these questions come up when we think about those words in 1 Corinthians 11 about drinking and eating in a worthy manner, right? We think of them in a legal context. Uh, here's the Lutheran response. Uh, who then receives this sacrament worthily? You see where we are? Fasting and bodily preparation are in fact a fine external discipline um, to help your confession. Uh, but a person who has faith in these words, given for you and shed for you for the forgiveness of sin, is really worthy and well prepared. However, a person who does not believe these words or doubts them is unworthy and unprepared because the words for you require truly believing hearts. So the work you do in the Lutheran understanding for confession is the faith that's been given to you as a gift and articulating that, um, saying, I believe that Christ's body is for me and being given to me. Um, I believe that Christ's body and blood were shed for the forgiveness of my sins. That's worthy for the Lutherans. So thanks for bringing that up. And, um, oh, you want, go ahead. Do you, or do you want to hold it until we come back? Okay.
topic as we look at the text from 1 Corinthians 11. Just preceding those words that we're discussing about eating and drinking worthily or Uh unworthily are the words of institution. And just prior to that are words from Paul that speaks to them about their divisions in the church. Right, exactly. So it seems to me the way to read that text is Paul is saying there's divisions. And this is what you should do when you come together. And the unworthy eating is eating with division. Because you're not discerning the body. Right. right. This is the this is the idea. So some people have said uh, when Paul says uh, you're not discerning the body, he's referring to the you know the physical presence of Jesus Christ. You can make that argument. I also like the other argument where he says you are not discerning the 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 body gathered here. You are not considering your neighbor. The simple fact of that, right? That is you how are, I would understand divisions. a reading yeah. of right. First Corinthians yeah. 11 in its entire context, that there's divisions among you, you're not caring about your neighbor, this is what the words of institutions are, Jesus brought people together in community, and eating and drinking unworthily is eating and drinking with divisions against your neighbor. That's how I would read it. Um, Yeah, we're going to go to lunch, I I think, but that's a good way to kind of set us up for the last part of the conversation after lunch. I, it's been recommended that we go just until 1 o'clock for lunch. Is that right? The program says 1.30. 1 o'clock. But would it be okay with everyone if we convened at 1 o'clock? Okay.